welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Cardiovascular diseases such as heart failure, acute MI, hypertension, and atrial fibrillation disproportionately affect ethnically diverse patient populations. Compounding this issue, ethnically diverse populations with these diseases are less likely to receive appropriate guideline-directed therapy and achieve management targets. The impact of social determinants of health in our diverse patient population is a known cause and gap in healthcare. Today, Dr. Alicia Jansen, a pharmacist at Mayo Clinic Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin, discusses how pharmacists and other providers have a unique opportunity to improve care in this patient population. Today, I'm really excited to talk about um, the racial and ethnic disparities um, in cardiac medicine um, and how it relates to medication management. I think this is a really important topic um, that I'm just hoping to increase awareness on. Um, So today, my goals after the presentation um, is that you'll be able to describe the social determinants of health that impact the management of cardiovascular disease states, recognize the racial and ethnic disparities in management of atrial fibrillation, myocardial infarction, hypertension, and heart failure, and then also help identify um, pharmacist interventions to help um, minimize the racial and ethnic disparities seen in cardiovascular disease state management. So the Institute of Medicine defines disparities as differences in healthcare outcomes that persist when access and patient clinical factors are all controlled. Um, And then I think it's important to also recognize that categories of race and ethnicity are social and political and cultural constructs. And when they're used independently to determine um, patient care, it can lead to inaccurate generalizations. So I think it's really important to recognize and address the um, social determinants of health. And it would be an an injustice to present on this topic, to not even acknowledge and um, further kind of bring up the discussion of the impact of the social determinants of health on different races and ethnicities. So the World Health Organization um, defines the social determinants of health as non-medical factors that influence health care outcomes, including the conditions in which people are born, grow, work, um, live, and age. And then the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, um, defines it as the conditions in the places where people live, learn, work, and play that affect a wide range of health risks and outcomes. So um, I'd like to start here with a case question. Um, Of note, it is a a kind of a longer case, so it wasn't able to fit fully on the poll everywhere. So we'll go through it here, and then um, the next we'll just have the question, not the case. 
Um, so GH is a 72-year-old first-generation Hispanic male who presents to your emergency department with chest pain. When you're doing his med rec and also a chart review, you notice he's supposed to be on several different medications, some of them including atorvastatin, lisinopril, amlodipine. He says that he's not been able to fill these medications in over a year. What are some of the things that you think as a pharmacist um, in consideration with the social determinants of health might be impacting this patient's ability to fill these medications. And if you could just put that into the poll everywhere as a free response. So, so far we've got access, possibly polypharmacy, transportation, insurance, and then cost, possibly age and resources. I think these are all really, really great points. Um, even the location um, of the pharmacy. Yeah, so I think that um, all of these are really, really awesome considerations. And my um, whole reason for bringing this question is to get us thinking that, um, you know, as pharmacists, when we're doing a med rec, or um, even just kind of interacting with patients, that might be a great opportunity to identify these barriers of care and hopefully help to, you know, um, allow for healthcare in general to better assess and limit these barriers. So um, thank you all for putting in your explanations. And we're gonna further kind of go through um, some of the defined social determinants of health. So um, the five, most validated factors when we're thinking about the social determinants of health include education, access, and quality of your education, economic stability, social and community context, environmental neighborhood um, factors, and then also the healthcare access and quality of your healthcare. So further diving into this, so when you think about, you know, economic stability and how this might impact patients and things we need to consider. Um, so, you know, thinking about the ability of a patient to um, afford uh, their medications that might be due to their um, possible income um, or their ability to have and maintain a job. Also, the financial support aspect when we were talking about um, insurance, that's, you know, something that's a large consideration when it comes to medication management. Um, thinking further into environmental or neighborhood factors that our patients might be influenced or impacted by their um, stability of home, like having a house or um, lack of transportation we had talked about, or even just increased crime and violence they may experience in their neighborhoods or their home. Um, access to education, you know, um, decreased access or quality of education may limit employment opportunities, um, also could lead to decreased healthcare literacy um, and also impact early childhood development. Um, when we're looking and considering food, um, so limited income can lead to decreased um, healthy diet and then also possibly even a lack of grocery stores if the patient might live in a what's considered a food desert where grocery stores may be scarce. Um, and then also just generalized food insecurity. Then when looking into community and social context of the patients, thinking about their just general support network that they may experience, the um, 
um, racism that patients do experience throughout their lives. And then also general community engagement and access to um, resources within their community. Um, then when thinking about their healthcare, thinking about the quality of healthcare they receive and the cultural competency of that facility, um, the you know, potential for implicit bias, and then the general distrust of healthcare systems that may be experienced um, in different, you know, amplitude by different races. Um, and then, you know, these can all lead to increased pathological and physical stresses, and then also lead to physical inactivity, poor health behaviors, possibly unhealthy, unhealthy diet, and poor quality of healthcare. Um, which then can lead to increased cardiovascular disease. So I think it's really important um, to keep these in the front of your mind as we're talking through the rest of the presentation today. Um, because yes, we are talking about the racial and ethnic disparities, but also acknowledging that patients um, with different race and um, ethnicities are impacted by the social determinants of health on a different level. So we're going to look into here how racial and ethnic disparities are affected by hypertension. So um, we're going to talk about the MESA trial, which is a trial that took place um, and, and looked at about almost 7,000 men and women ages 45 to 85 that didn't have clinical cardiovascular disease in the U.S. in August of 2000 to 2002. And they just wanted to determine, you know, subclinical factors of cardiovascular disease. We're going to focus on the hypertension aspect of this trial. Um, and what they did was all participants completed a self-administered questionnaire, and then they were interviewed by um, trained research staff. Their blood pressure then was measured um, three different times, waiting, you know, adequate five to 10 minutes between readings. And the average of those readings was used as assessment. Um, and then they did separate or assess that based on the race, which was self-reported using that questionnaire. So the results here um, that I kind of wanted to focus on and highlight. So the distribution of a hypertension diagnosis, which was um, identified by patients um, on the questionnaire. So as you can see here, uh, African-American patients held that diagnosis of hypertension a lot more frequently or commonly than a lot of the other races with white coming in second. Um, but then I think I really want to focus here on the patients with controlled hypertension, which was determined from the um, blood pressure readings that they had received. So of those 40.4% that had identified that they held a hypertension diagnosis, um, there was a 49% less likely chance that they were um, going to be controlled with their hypertension regimen when compared to white patients. And I think that's really important to recognize um, because that also, you know, can further increase in the Hispanic population and then also the Chinese population. Of note, it's important to recognize that I'm reporting these um, races and ethnicities as they were reported in the trials. Um, so I think it's really important to think about why. Why do we think these patients are um, statistically significantly less controlled um, with their antihypertensive regimens. 
Um, and what are some of the causes of this and how can we as pharmacists help to limit this gap and better recognize it? So um, another kind of case question I have here. So TUI is a 42-year-old African-American patient who was recently diagnosed with primary hypertension. Um, which of these medication regimens are you going to recommend starting for him? All right, so it looks like amlodipine was most commonly the answer. So um, per the um, ISH, 2020 guidelines, the International Society of Hypertension, they um, recommend in Black patients to initiate a low-dose ARB and then a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. Of note, um, ARB is angiotensin II receptor blocker. Um, so they recommend starting the um, dual therapy right away in patients with hypertension. And it's really interesting because they um, delineate between therapy recommendations in patients that are non-Black and Black patients. And that's a really controversial recommendation. And we'll kind of further kind of discuss why they recommend it and alternative considerations for this recommendation. So um, one of the trials that the ISH guidelines um, states for the recommendation of using that therapy in African-American patients um, is this systematic review article that includes 35 trials assessing antihypertensive medications in over 25,000 patients. Um, and one of their primary objectives was to um, assess the percentage of patients who reached goal blood pressure levels. Um, and then there were seven trials that assessed the morbidity and mortality of patients. Um, so there was initiation of different antihypertensive medications with all of them listed there of which ones that they assessed. And then race was just self-reported by patients. Um, and then of note, the seven trials did not find any difference in morbidity and mortality in patients um, with respect to these medications. So when looking at why the guidelines might recommend um, initiating a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker in this patient population. So per that trial, 46% of the patients that were initiated on this were able to achieve their target blood pressure levels. When you're comparing that then to um, a ARB, um, it looks like only 19% of patients were able to achieve their target blood pressure levels with respect. Um, and then also the diuretic, which most frequently was the was hydrochlorothiazide or um, a thiazide diuretic. 31% of patients were able to achieve their um, target blood pressure levels. So that would lead to the secondary recommendation of um, doing using a thiazide diuretic in this patient population. So some of the rationale that the guideline um, states for their treatment recommendation would be the increased risk of angioedema. And then also the ALHAT trial, which is a trial that assessed many patients um, and different kind of therapies of hypertension. Um, and it showed that decreased incidence of stroke in um, African-American patients when using a thiazide diuretic. 
Um, and then also the last study we had just went over showed better blood pressure lowering efficacy. Possibly a thought that the guidelines um, acknowledges is maybe due to lower levels of renin in this patient population. So some other considerations that I'd like to challenge all of you to think about and um, acknowledge that our guidelines do the best that they can recommend at that time, but there are also other additional considerations you should keep in mind. Um, so there is some thought or evidence that systemic ren renin activity may be disconcordant with um, actual tissue renin activity. Um, and then also considering the contribution of Little syndrome, which is a genetic syndrome that can lead to decreased um, levels of renin due to um, sodium potassium regulation. And it's actually disproportionately um, increased in African-American patient populations. So that might be a contributing factor to why we saw this um, effect. And then the impact of high sodium diets in patients, um, as we had talked about a uh, food desert and possibly the lack of patients to ability to receive or obtain um, healthy, um, low preservative foods, that might be a consideration when thinking about the amount of sodium patients are receiving in their diet. Um, and then the ASK trial demonstrated that ACE inhibitors are more, affected, more effective in reducing chronic kidney disease compared to calcium channel blockers in patients with, um, in African-American patients, which I think is a really important consideration as well, because um, disproportionately chronic kidney disease is seen in African-American patients. So are we targeting more so the effect or the blood pressure um, lowering effect. So I think it's really important to, to acknowledge that and to maybe further look into that as well. And then also um, of note, the overall incidence of angioedema is very low. So um, it technically is a three times, um, African-American patients are technically three times more likely to experience angioedema, but overall the incidence in all patients is less than 1%. So it's really important to note that, um, yes, that is a consideration. It might be lead to being more um, opt to use a ARB versus an ACE inhibitor, but also considering that the overall risk is pretty low. So now we're going to talk about racial and ethnic disparities in myocardial infarction. So a trial um, looking at... Um, revascular interventions in non-ST segment elevation MIs or myocardial infarctions, which I'm gonna to refer to now as STEMI, looked at over 80,000 patients with NSTEMI um, from January to December, 2017 to 2019. And this was assessed using insurance data claims. Um, and the primary objective here was to look at the patients that undergo coronary angiography and then also percutaneous intervention during their hospitalization and then look at it with, um, within the aspect of considering race. So they report this in um, odds ratio as well. Um, so looking here, you can see that all of these values um, are 
except the um, in the Asian patient population of PCI are statistically significant and important to consider. So looking at the patients that of Asian um, race are for every one Caucasian patient, about 0.9 patients of Asian background would receive a coronary angiography. So they're about 10% less likely to receive that care. Um, and continuing on, it just continues to um, kind of further highlight this gap of care. And I think it's important to acknowledge that this is happening and this is a gap that um, may lead to more complex medication management of these patients if they are not receiving these revascularization interventions. Um, so it impacts us as pharmacists and then also other healthcare professionals because the medication management of patients not receiving this can be um, a lot more um, complex. So I think it's really important to not only acknowledge um, you know, the provider possibly bias or um, implicit bias that is seen here, but also the um, repercussions of this. So. so another study here looking at the effect of race and then the physician's recommendation for patients to receive cardiac catheterization. So in this study, they um, surveyed 720 physicians and presented these physicians with pre-recorded actors that were portraying patients that came in with a comp, uh, with a chief complaint of chest pain. And this was all by computer simulation. So patients had over 144 possible presenting combinations, including you know, race, sex, type of chest pain, stress test results, of which were randomly assigned to the physicians. Um, and then the primary objective of this study was to look at the percentages of black and white patients that are recommended to receive cardiac catheterization. Um, so the results showed that about 90.6% of white patients that had presented were um, referred to receive cardiac cath intervention, whereas in Black patients, about 84.7% were um, referred to receive cardiac catheterization, um, which just further emphasizes my um, point last time that this is a gap that's seen in care, and I think it's really important to call attention to it and to increase awareness. Um, this might play on um, what we call implicit bias, where providers aren't consciously making the effort to refer black patients less commonly than white patients, but it's, it is something that's happening. And I think it's important to address and call attention to. Moving on to racial and ethnic disparities seen in atrial fibrillation. So looking at a cross-sectional study that um, looks at race and ethnicity differences in the prevalence of AFib among older adults. So it looked at over 400,000 patients that were older than 60 years old in California. And they were looking at determining the prevalence of AFib based on race. Um, and then it was just assessed using healthcare claims data. 
So looking here, you can see that um, different races, like in Black patients, they are about 50% less likely to um, be diagnosed with AFib. And um, the trend kind of continues. Hispanic patients, um, similar results. And then Asian patients are about 30% less likely. And this is a really interesting phenomenon and can have a multitude of reasons, um, which we will kind of talk about here with the AFib or atrial fibrillation paradox theory. So this is a theory that um, talks about the, um, I guess, because a lot of patients with different races and ethnicity actually have a lot of what we consider to be the traditional risk factors that can lead to AFib. And it's really interesting because it's, why do we think that they have all these risk factors, increased risk of risk factors and presenting less commonly with AFib. Um, so some of the theories for this um, would be just access to general health care that's seen in different racial populations for patients to even receive an AFib diagnosis. Um, then also the increased median of life expectancy seen in white patients, possibly even the inaccurate assessment of risk factors that's, that is acknowledged for AFib. Patients might present different. And then also there is a theory that AFib protective single nucleotide polymorphisms that are seen more commonly in African-American patients may contribute to this as well. Um, of note, these are just some of the theories, but I think it's really important to um, just talk about that this is a phenomenon that we see, and it's important to um, keep it at our the front of our mind that are we adequately assessing these patients as well. So we're going to kind of talk about the treatment differences then when it comes to AFib. Um, this study looked at the racial and ethnic differences in AFib, symptoms, treatment patterns, and then outcomes. Um, looked, in, looked at over 9,000 patients with AFib from um, 174 different medical centers. Um, it was a prospective multi-center trial um, using data registry of patients. And then it was just the primary outcome, like we had mentioned before, was assessing symptoms of treatment patterns. So looking here at the results, so the percentage of patients that were managed with rate control instead of rhythm control is reported here. As you can see in the Black and Hispanic patient populations, they were more commonly controlled um, for their AFib with rate instead of rhythm control. And it's an important topic to discuss because also that patient population often will present younger ages with AFib. Um, and as we know clinically, um, when patients are controlled with rhythm control, they may experience less symptoms of AFib, um, which can be detrimental or very impactful for overall quality of life. And then further looking into the racial and ethnic disparities seen in heart failure. So um, a systematic review article that looked at acute care hospitalizations for heart failure in adults in New York City's healthcare systems assessing over 8,000 patients. Um, it was a retrospective cohort analysis that took place from 2007 to 2010. 
Um, and one of the primary outcomes that I'm going to emphasize today would be the readmission rate seen at 30 and 90 days in these patients. And it was compared and broken down um, based off of race and ethnicity. So the readmission rates are reported here as odds ratios seen at 30 days and 90 days. Um, and then they used um, Caucasian white patients as their reference range. So looking here, the um, <clears throat> a lot of these aren't statistically significant. As you can see, they cross um, the um, factor that's considered for statistical significance. But I think it's also important to notice the trend. Um, and as you can see, the Hispanic patient populations received a statistically significant higher readmission rate at 30 days, whereas the um, Hispanic and um, the Asian and Black patient population received a 90 day readmission rate more commonly. So, you know, I think this further can kind of touch on what can we do to optimize medication management and help to limit these gaps as pharmacists and healthcare providers? And is there something that we're missing in assessing or um, identifying these barriers for patients? So what are some interventions that pharmacists or healthcare providers can make to help minimize these gaps that we've talked about that are seen in care for racially diverse populations? Tailoring our education materials, um, which is a really good point to make sure that um, patients are receiving educational materials in the language that they best understand and making sure you take adequate time with them to go through, um, maybe even calling on an interpreter or an, the in, um, interpreter line. Um, you know, it might take a little bit more time for us, but it is a really important consideration. Um, increasing awareness. Asking patients what is what what might be a possible barrier, ensuring medications are covered and recommending alternative options, definitely establishing trust. I see a trend just to um, identifying these gaps and acknowledging that these gaps exist, and I think that's um, really the entire reason that I chose this topic and um, really appreciate. Um, be everyone acknowledging this as well. So yes, continue the work to further improve this gap. Um, a couple of pharmacist interventions that I had identified um, ensure that um, educational tools are in the patient's preferred language. We can screen patients for the social determinants of health utilizing strategies to increase medication compliance, whether that be med packing, um, creating combination medications, making sure patients can afford their medications, helping patients to apply for assistance programs if needed, and then generally just approving access to healthcare by medication management programs or volunteering at low um, cost, possibly free healthcare clinics as we can. Currently, some actions that are taken by Mayo Clinic and Enterprise, um, just a few that I've identified, not all of them, um, would be to collect the social determinants of health for patients, and we report them then to their medical record, and that stays with them. Um, 
We also will provide educational tools and training on diversity and inclusion programs that are provided for all employees, achieving equity, inclusion, and diversity newsletters. And then um, also there's a whole entire department here at Mayo that's dedicated to diversity and inclusion. And there's also a website called Get Real where patients can talk about patients and employees can talk about their um, kind of overall experience um, in consideration with race and diversity. So some takeaways that I would like you to take away from this presentation and really a call to action and what I want to see happen from this um, presentation is to acknowledge this issue and to work to increase awareness overall. And then also educating yourself on implicit bias and making a con conscious effort to limit your own implicit bias. Um, advocating for racially diverse populations in study groups and clinical trials to allow for adequate assessment in all patients. And then educating yourself on proper management of patient populations and further looking into when guidelines recommend different therapies, why, and when should we consider doing something alternative than what the guidelines are recommending. So I think it's really important to take, take this with you and to just think about it throughout your practice. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.